You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock, and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. Each week, an esteemed guest and I explore a listener or blog reader's question. You can submit yours at vickybrock.com slash podcast. Joining me this week is Mark Logan, former Chief Operating Officer of Skyscanner, where he took the company to the most famous exit in Scottish business history. Also, he was Director of Engineering for a startup that Cisco acquired. So Mark knows his stuff. He's been wise counsel to me, and I wanted to extend that wise counsel to you as well. So welcome to my living room, Mark. Thank you for having me, Vicky. (laughs) Um, There's two questions this week for reasons that I hope will become clear. Um, The first of those is from a CEO, and that CEO is asking, how do I ensure that my talented management team are getting the most out of their management meetings without me needing to be in them? Currently feels like we're spending a lot of time doing updates rather than constructive challenges that re- result in action. Um, so that's, that, that's the top asking a question about their management team. The second question, you'll see why I put these together, is um, from an employee in an early stage company. And they're saying, my CTO, who I directly report to, is driving me and the rest of the team nuts His plans make no sense. He openly blames us when things goes wrong. He patronizes us. He talks down to us. I think the rest of the executive team think they can't do without him, but we all disagree. So um, (laughs) questions of managing growth, managing upwards, managing toxic people. So is that just a normal day in the office for you, Mark? Well, um, not not exactly, but but these these questions all revolve around the same... Issues which are that, you know, if you ask the fundamental question, what is management or leadership about in the context of an organisation? Um, you know, many people would say that it's ultimately about leverage. It's about, does your presence as a leader increase the output of the team in a sustained way? Not some, you know, dysfunctional short-term way, but in a sustained way. And if it doesn't, then you should consider what value you add in that position. Um, so business and growing a business is all about um, questions of leverage as the, as the company grows. So if we take the, the first conundrum or question, um, the, 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 just recapping that, the, the situation that the CEO there describes is very good to hear that he or she, first of all, believes that they have a, a talented team. That's, that's great. But they want to know how do they get management meetings to be effective without having to be in them. And uh, I, I think... In that regard, you know, I've seen I've seen many uh, companies default to meetings where expensive people get together for precious time and simply update each other on what they're doing, and everyone else goes passive during the update of a given individual, and eventually an hour and a half has gone past, and everyone leaves. I think we should be clear first of all that's not an effective use of time, although it's arguably the most common way that management teams configure themselves. So it's great to see that the CEO in question here is keen to to find a better way so the the underlying answer in my mind for this is that if you think about how a ceo's job changes from being the only person in the company to being let's say 100 people or more it tends to switch from being the doer the founder for example to the director someone that tells people what they think should be done to ultimately the educator the enabler 
And I say educator because to have people in your business on its front line or near its front line able to operate and scale the business, they don't have to have agency. Now, agency means that they can conceive of the right plan and they're able to execute that plan. Mm -hmm. So it's all about agency. And a manager or leader who is able to create agency at scale is creating that that dramatic leverage that's required. Remembering there's always more of other people than there's of you. Yeah. So <laughs> you know, how, how do you get that, that, that enablement? I think the first thing to say is everyone has to be pretty clear what the goals of the task are. So you could call that alignment. Now you have to be careful not to create too much alignment because the more alignment you create past a certain point, the more bureaucracy you, you create to enforce that alignment. So there's a kind of sweet spot where people from CEO outwards to the people in the front line of the business, they all have the same shared view of what we're trying to get done. That doesn't come for free, but it's something that uh, CEOs should spend a lot of time trying to create, but not so much that you create an industry around alignment because mm -hmm. that tends to create a degrading effect. So alignment is, is, is really important. Autonomy is one of these words that's banded about. Now, what does it mean here? Well, it means that you're able to act with minimum handoffs and dependencies. And one of those dependencies is on your boss. So you need to think about the structures of your company. We can talk about some of those, but the structures that allow people to act without having to consult on a wide basis. You know, one, one simple example of that is that many organizations will ensure you know in development teams that the, the code that they're operating on is very modular so that teams can deliver that code to to live independently of each other on a regular basis mm -hmm. um so your autonomy is is mostly about can i can i act without consultancy or, or handoffs a, as a part of bau and you can only give people autonomy if they have competence so a lot of companies make the mistake of saying Right, we, you know, we operate in an autonomous structure and then the people they put in those positions aren't really able to operate. Not necessarily because they're not bright enough, but because they've not been equipped sufficiently. Yeah. And that's why at the outset of this discussion, I said that the CEO in this case needs to be an educator. That's where competence comes from. You're really saying in that answer or that question, how do I make sure that my people can operate the way I would have operated and that requires investment. Yeah, so. and I, I really struggled with that. Mm. I mean, I kind of brought those people in and said, make it so, uh, you know. And, <laughs> you know, there are quite a few implications in there, like that we all understand what it is and we all understand what so looks like and that we are all equipped to do so. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, looking back, I think probably more guidance other than make it so. Um. Yeah. I think everyone struggles with this because, you know, you're still accountable um, responsible in fact but you're no longer in control and people struggle to have responsibility without control but if you want to scale an organization you have to you have to embrace that that seeming paradox and you can tell from your know, the discussion we've had here that none of these things are straightforward so getting people to the level of competence where they can act as you would have acted requires considerable investment organizing your company in a way that people have autonomy and an agency requires structural and process change it requires cultural changes so none of that comes easy but if you can do it then you get you, you start to scale a company and if you think about skyscanner scaling from you know 90 people when i joined to over 900 we would only have got there if all those people were being useful and effective mm -hmm. the, the risk of not doing this is that your distance from the front line of the business as it grows increases so you're no longer able to to understand what the issues there are 
And if you're still the decision maker, then the front line of your business becomes passive and waits for decisions. Yeah. So that's a, that's a worst of all, all world situation. Now, the, the, in more prosaic terms, the, the direct question of how to run that meeting, um, I essentially banned status updates in, in meeting time because they can be done other ways. Yeah, so do you take that kind of the full hug? I mean, I don't know, were you guys running an agile type methodology? Were you doing still doing stand-ups to keep people informed? Or, or? Yeah, so the, the individual teams would run stand-ups. Now, stand-up was designed to, it, it's less of a status update, more of a, a team, how do, we, how do we operate today? Yeah. Um, but it's really, so that I think engineers, for example, and product people often understand that mechanism well, and, and you stand up so you don't waste too much time because you get tired. But we don't stand up in executive weekly update meetings. Um, maybe we should. We settle in for the two-hour Friday update. It's important to make every meeting effective. Your time is precious. You've got 100 units of time a week. Mm. Do you want to waste them hearing someone recite something you could read? Yep. Or would you rather have a more active conversation? So the way I configured my arrangements, we would meet as a management team to work through difficult issues and opportunities and strategies, but I'd expect people to update me in a much more efficient way. And uh, you know that, that's what I'd recommend to anybody is take out the status part, replace it with activity, with thinking, with brainstorming. That, that's a useful way to, to spend time. And intranets and email, etc., are perfectly good for mm-hmm. status updates. Yeah. So, you know, you were expecting your executives to walk in fully briefed. Would, <clears> you, did, would you have quite a specific agenda for that meeting? Um, it, it depends. So we, we had a number of... So, if you, so the thing you want to think about is what's your governance rhythm? Now, depending on the complexity of your business, you'll have a number of different governance forums. Your responsibility is to make each of those uh, have a very high signal-to-noise ratio. So... Yep. Um, you know, that, that, that depends on the type of business. Oh, I used to aspire to some signal in there somewhere, <laughs> well, occasionally. We never quite get there, but, yeah. but equally you shouldn't ban, I mean, you be careful your governance allows for those situations when you don't know as a team and you want to sit for two or three hours and just try and figure something out. So, you know, different meetings allow themselves or lend themselves to, to different, different types of issue. But when it comes to routine, you know, are we on track for our numbers? Um, you know, what's the plan for next week? Has everyone aligned and you know no issues have arisen? These need to be fairly well uh, scripted from a standing agenda perspective. And then you have other outlets for, you know, let's just kick this issue about because we're not sure where we're going with it. Yeah. And I think I think that's really interesting what you're saying about there is that you have to come in with the status update done. Because I've just sat in so many of those where we don't even, in the two hours, we don't even complete the mm. looking backwards, mm. yet alone the... What does this all mean? What do we need to do? Who's doing it? And mm. what are the priorities for, for next week? Yes. Um, and then I think a lot of tension starts to build up quite quickly. Almost kind of like the scenario you get with the second question mm-hmm. is that this frustration builds up with these meetings becoming blockages for people actually doing their work. Mm-hmm. And then worst case scenario, that creeps yeah. into the evening and the weekend and you do your work out of hours because the whole week's taken up with meetings. Well, how many times have we heard people saying, I do my work at night after the meetings are done? And yet we still continue that way. You know, it, it, it's funny how as a species we can walk towards failure very, quite happily. And I think it's because we often confuse activity and outcomes. And if, if you want to know what's the North Star for designing governance or designing meetings or, or interacting with your team, just keep asking yourself, which wins in this business, outcomes or activity? Mm-hmm. And if you're very outcomes orientated, that makes you more 
critical of the time you're wasting yeah. in other forums. Rather than being busy fools, you're actually going very closely on your agreed metrics and your destination. Yeah, you're trying to strip everything out that you could have known in other ways, so you're not wasting time. Now, another classic example of waste is where we schedule one-to-ones with all of our you know, direct reports, and in that one-to-one, most of the meeting is them saying, here's what I did last week, when you probably already knew that from those other meetings. Um, and what a one-to-one should be about is about that person, yeah. about how they're performing, what they're worried about, about that education I was talking about. And if it's taken up with an item six, yeah, John made that call on Tuesday and it went well, we're waiting to hear back, then that's just uh, an opportunity lost. So you've got to think about outcomes over activity and moving from a controller to an enabler, from a doer to an educator. And uh, you know, be very careful to eliminate everything you could have found out other ways so that, that you're using your brain time actively with your team. And I think that's one of the things that, especially when you were a founder CEO, you, there's every chance you've never even been a manager. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'd never had any formal management training. I'd never, I'd never been in middle management in a large company. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I'd gone from, well, me to three people to five people to... 20 people to a management meetings, board meetings, and nobody had ever explained how mm. to make that transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's actually such a very useful thing to hear that put in process terms because it is a process. Mm-hmm. And once you know what it is, mm-hmm. you can act on it. But yeah. while you're making it all up, you actually become less and less efficient and less and less, I think, probably confident in your own ability to be doing the job. And then you get into that danger zone a few years in when founder CEOs tend to get the chop um, for a lot of these reasons, mm-hmm. I think, actually. Yeah, I think I think even worse than that, Vicky, you, you find often that, I mean, human nature is to say that if, I'm not, if I don't understand something, then I tend to undervalue it because it makes me feel better about understanding it. So I've come across more than one founder joke about you know I, I'm, a, I'm a product person or I'm a visionary or whatever I might be but you know I'm not very good at management ha 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 isn't that funny and it isn't funny it's unfortunate because you shouldn't hire anybody into your company without doing it for the reason of creating more scale and leverage in the business mm-hmm. and if you aren't able to successfully manage those people and they all make mistakes but if, you know if chronically that's just not something you think is important then you're basically adding people without adding productivity. So in the end, you'll be held accountable for that. So my advice for any anybody, you know, any stage of their career, is think about in the same way as you thought about being a you know a marketeer or a product person or you know a salesperson or a coder, whatever it might be, as concrete skills. The the mistake many people make is not to think about management as a concrete skill as well, hmm. with techniques and you know everything else that goes with it. And therefore, your reading list should be changing, you know, <laughs> Interesting, uh, into yeah. those kind of books. So less of the visionary leader, which you've actually already got nailed, mm-hmm. and and more of the mechanics. Yeah, te- technique is everything. I mean, if you look at Andy Murray, great natural <laughs> tennis player, and you could name many others. I just picked that as a as a, an example. But it's interesting how these hugely talented people work extremely hard on technique. The boring technique that, that they don't want to do, but that's what, what complements ability. And when it comes to management, you know, it's not enough to have empathy or to be charismatic. You have to also work at the techniques of 
setting expectations, enabling teams, learning how structures work, learning how dynamics play across those. And there's a lot of learning to be done there. And you know, companies like Skyscanner wouldn't make it to the points they did unless we treated those disciplines as concrete and just as important as product vision or you know, programming skills or whatever it may be. And were you, um, I mean, th- this might be too much of a, an example of specific to Skyscanner, so perhaps a more general answer would be better. Do you see that the founders tend to survive on that path and, and buy into it? Or do you, because obviously you've, you've come in at that later mm-hmm. stage, uh-huh. um, which I've sometimes rudely called <clears throat> kind of when adult supervision arrives. Um, but I, I think it's mu- I think it's way, way more important than that. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm conscious it was something that I was a little intimidated by because I didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. Ha- have you seen that play out, you know, well, badly and well. Well, I, I work with a lot of founders now and have in the past. And if you were to you know, draw a spectrum of, of uh, responses that founders exhibit to this, you know, this um, this question, then you see people fall into sort of different categories. So some founders are actually interested and good at management. And if you can get someone who, you know, fits that that position also has the other things a founder needs. It's been very difficult being a founder, as I don't need to tell you. It's got many different calls in your and your time and abilities. If you get people in that category, that's great. The second category is people who um, are very good at you know some of the key founder skills and recognise that they're weaker in some other areas and want to get help, both in terms of bringing in some expertise or and or learning about it themselves. And those, those people are, are great. Um, and then you have a category of people who, as I say, dismiss um, the topic because they're not good at it, so therefore it's easier not to learn it if I dismiss it, or other motivations. And those companies um, you know, have the sort of difficulties that you start to see in the second question that, that, that you asked. And you can see the, the waste of human capital in that second question. People are spending more time talking about why they're unhappy with this reporting arrangement than doing the work yeah. and that's the human waste that occurs. I mean I've seen it I've seen it in multiple businesses experienced it in in my own and I didn't I didn't have the framework of particularly knowing how to deal with it so by the time it was turning into a maelstrom of cultural problems that we hadn't previously had mm. too long had passed uh-huh. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm seeing it in other, I'm seeing it in other places now, and you know, this, 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 this question, um, I thought I would use it with the CTO role, at the, the, the mm. person who submitted it in it, because I've actually a couple of times heard it referenced mm. about the CTO, which is not to criticise CTOs per se, but it's an interesting role. Mm. It's kind of one of those first ones that get created. Mm-hmm. At, at, of non-founding C-levels, which is like, oh, crikey, we need a CTO to kind of come in and run product and engineering mm. and everything to do with product while we focus on the business as though yeah. they're separate things. Yes. Um, you're often perhaps having non-technical people make that mm. higher. Um, so I think it might be a bit of a lightning rod for, for mm. cultural issues generally. I mean, do, in the in the question here, do you think this is? It'd be quite interesting. I, I read it and thought, oh, he's a toxic person. You know, mm-hmm. this is a this is a bad person. But would you say actually probably has nothing to do with that, and it's actually a bad process? Well, um, it, I think it's good that you you know you pause to to rush to judgment on this question because I think often we you know we rush to plausible 
explanations and rarely does plausibility and actuality coincide. So we do have to be careful with this. Recognising the question is asked from the perspective of the you know, of, of, of one of the participants yep. and therefore it will be by definition only partially the whole pic- the whole picture. Um, so I, I would think about this question as we recap it, you know, the, the person's complaining that the CTO um, essentially is dictatorial, um, none of the plans that they have make any sense, um, you know, they blame people when things go wrong, they patronise, talk down, etc. So let's let's look at the possible causes around here and possible solutions. And, and let's look at them from the perspective of the, the party that's complaining, because clearly if, if that person was a CEO or a founder, they could probably take different types of action. Mm-hmm. So what would you do if you found yourself in this scenario? As we all have at, yeah, at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, 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 my, my diagnosis with the limited information is a classic example of what I was saying earlier. We've put someone in a senior position based on their concrete technical skills and assumed that that's sufficient. Uh, regardless of their leadership and management skills. And the net result of that is we've now got a reduction in the productivity of the engineering team. And that's the that's mm-hmm. the, the measurable cost of that. Um, this person just seems over-promoted. And if I, so I, I look at, if I was, if I was the, the, you know, the CEO or the CEO in this situation and I was looking at this, I'd be looking at, do I um, move the CTO into an individual contributor position and bring in a VP of engineering? Mm-hmm. Or do I try to um, address this person's uh, lack of capability in this area? So point out some things, like um, you realise when you openly blame people, you make them never take risks anymore, um, etc. So I would, I would look to see if this was a fixable situation over some months and, and take one of my trusted uh, you know, leaders and ask them to mentor and support. So that can often work. because. Often it's hard for us to see our own faults. So sometimes if someone points them out mm-hmm. and we're, we're well-intentioned, we can, it's painful, but we can yeah, improve. Absolutely. So I'd be looking at those kind of remedies. Ultimately, I would remove the person because the cost of one individual uh, versus the cost of the entire team um, is an easy equation to, to, to act against. Um, so I don't know the, the circumstances mm. here. I, I would ask the, the person asking the question, let's now look at what they should do. Now, statements like, you know, his plans make no sense... Um, it's an interesting statement. It's very rarely that plans make no sense. I, I'd start from, could I cognitively empathise with a CTO and try and figure out why they might be acting this way? Um, there might be good reasons for it. It could be under enormous dysfunctional pressure from the board to hit certain dates mm-hmm. and they're passing that on. Yeah, um, or they're passing on a plan they don't understand themselves. Yeah, yeah. it's very common for a, a CEO to say, I mean, you do all that next week or next okay. month. I used to accidentally brief product all the time. I mean, I was just like brain burping, mm. um, you know, creatively <laughs> brain burping. And suddenly I'd realised that some people were going away and building that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just think the CEO has to uh, learn to shut their mouths more when in the uh, earshot of people whose job it is to build what yeah, came out of your mouth. That's a great point because you were talking about a CTO who's not empowering his or her team. Quite often that, that's a cascade effect because the CEO is doing exactly the same as the CTO. And it's very, very common for a non-technical CEO to say, you know, that, that date of next year is not good enough, we need it in six months. Mm-hmm. And then the, the rest is, is a sad story of decline because the software can't be written in six months and we take shortcuts and it all starts to go downhill. And on the way, the team gets given a whole bunch of dysfunctional dates they can't hit. 
So it might be that that's a CTO situation. And if I was, you know, a relatively mature, I like to think I am, but if I was a relatively <laughs> mature engineer um, working to that, that person, I'd first of all sit down and very clearly say, look, this is this is how this has been perceived. Is, you know, are we under date pressure? Is there anything we can do to help? Give the guy a chance to respond openly with the issues that, that he or she's dealing with. So that can often lead to a different set of behaviours. Um, and it's always worth a try. Um, you know, if you don't ask, you'll never you'll never know. Ultimately, your your sanction here as an employee or a report of that person is to leave the company. And they say that you know people leave the managers, not companies. Yeah. Um, if I was in that person's circumstance, because my sanction is to leave, I know that's not an easy thing to mm-hmm. do, but that's ultimately what I'm going to do anyway. Surely, it's worth having the conversation that says. Or, or come with you know another colleague and say like this is how it feels working for you what's going on and you might be lucky and the person might be open to explaining some of the pressure they're under or trying to change their behavior yeah. seeing that work half half the time it works half the time it, it doesn't and if they've tried that or oh, the, 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 the CTO isn't open to that I mean is having a conversation <clears> with <throat> the CEO or the CEO the right next move or is that a level of game playing that becomes problematic well i i I think it is the right next move i mean if you consider here i'm making an assumption that these problems are sufficiently concerning that people are writing to this this pod that we're we're doing so it's obviously a big issue for them and they're probably thinking i'm going to leave this company at some point so it's incumbent on you to try all things before you do that now um, the risk is that you go to someone more senior and say we've got these issues and they're widespread and it's going to lead to big problems and the first thing that that, that senior person does is go and talk to CTO and tell them yeah. they've done this and that does happen and that's um, you know very very bad when it does yeah. so if you are that senior person receiving that message you need to respect the confidentiality of it unless the person's explicitly said that they want to yeah. you know, talk about it in a, in a way that's open but um, assuming that you've got that trust uh, then it's worth having that discussion. I would always be careful to try to assess the likelihood of the senior person I escalate to um, keeping it confidential. And I think you'll know the ones that will and the ones that won't, depending on how they've handled yeah. other scenarios. If you don't think the confidentiality is there, I wouldn't do it. And I'd just start looking for a job because uh, nothing's going to change otherwise. Yeah. And I think when you're in the employee situation, that's the best, that's the most power you have. That there comes a point when your biggest power is to remove mm. yourself from yes, the process. Indeed. And it's, so people often forget they have that sanction. You know, they can always leave. I often see people in businesses who are unhappy in them, um, but are comfortable in their unhappiness because it's a bit inconvenient to move. So I'll just sit here and, and moan about stuff. Um, you always have to, and I talk about agency, you've got to have personal agency too. You know, the exceptions to the, the power relationship there is when. You've got like a senior technical individual who's got a lot of authority um, because they understand the system so well. Um, they can often have quite a lot of um, you know influence when they take an issue to escalation. Um, so it's not like everybody's powerless here. But my, my summary of all that would be, if you're going to leave anyway, eventually, have the conversation with the CTO first if you can and take the risk. You might surprise yourself. If that's not effective, because you've you've tried you can then safely escalate it without uh, feeling that you've been devious because you've made it clear that's where you're heading Um, but be careful that you understand how the escalated party is going to react 
Um, but seriously, you know, don't stay in an environment that's broken if you don't think anyone wants to fix it because you'll, you'll leave an end and you'll just waste a few months. I really do think that's fantastic advice because there's no point in your going to work every day and it making you unhappy, mm. which whichever role you're in. Uh-huh. Um, really, it, Yeah, you know, I, I think people forget that. that um, you know, I always recommend people ask the question, do I enjoy this job? And some days you're nervous and stressed. But do I fundamentally feel fulfilled by what I'm doing? When you don't, in a chronic basis, you really need to change something. And anyone who has changed it, I've rarely seen them regret that that choice. So many of us feel we have no choice. We often fall into I have no choice syndrome because we're so focused on the job we're in. Maybe we're working too many hours and we get home our partner saying, where have you been? And let's go mm-hmm. and do some family stuff. But once you lift your head up, you'll find there's always other opportunities and options out there. Um, so we should never get ourselves into a position where we feel that we have no choice but to stay in a dysfunctional environment. And I think um, I think that's a lovely uh, note to wrap this up on because I think one of the fascinating things is how many people find the courage to make the leap uh-huh. from being in that position to starting up. I think sometimes they may have wanted to start their own company, what may have been a dream, mm-hmm. but it's felt too hard Uh, and then they reach a point where actually they feel they've got a lot less to lose mm -hmm. um, and if they don't do it now they never will I mean redundancy obviously is a big driver but I think being unhappy in a job and walking away from that is is a real good motivator and um, you know I I always kind of feel failure is not the worst thing that can happen you know never having had the opportunity to try it is worse than trying and failing indeed and you know I think it's even harder to leave a job that you really like to take that risk, that's when you really need courage. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I'm not advocating here that, you know, if you're in that bad situation that's not working for the management relationship, that you leave and then find a job necessarily. That, that's a perfectly viable option. But I'd, I'd advocate instead that rather than spending those kind of 40 units of your 100 units of time feeling bad and discussing it with your colleagues and, you know, just generally sort of uh, spending time on the emotions of it, use that 40 units to start looking for other jobs and then you yeah. don't have a, such a risk. Um, so not, not to end on a kind of negative note because oh, I think uh, it's a liberating powerful <laughs> note you know know your power and use yeah, it uh, is one of the things that we are very mm. rarely uh, educated or encouraged to do so thank mm. you very much Mark it's been That's a pleasure good. to talk thank to you, you. For, for having me. I'm Vicky Brock and you've been listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast my guest this week was Mark Logan you can submit your question at vickybrock.com slash podcast. And don't forget to check out the blog at vickybrock.com slash blog. Thank you. Um.